Welcome to another episode of Hey Siri. My name is Tom Siri. I'm your host. And I am the one who takes you far beyond what the Siri app on your phone can tell you about things that are associated with business, being a good leader, or just trends or interesting things that I want to dig into. Today, I have two amazing guests. I have Dr. Bill Portuese, a Seattle facial plastic surgeon, and Dr. Paul Nassif, a Beverly Hills facial plastic surgeon. And we're going to talk about noses, we're going to talk about business, we're going to talk about pandemics, and really have a robust conversation about two surgeons who I've known for, boy, it's been almost 15 years, and I welcome you to listen in. Okay, welcome to the Hey Siri podcast. I've got amazing guests today. I've got Dr. Paul Nassif from Beverly Hills, California, and Dr. William Portuese. I call him Bill. He's in Seattle, Washington, where I'm based. Welcome, gentlemen. Hello, my friends. Nice to see you guys. Thank you. Nice to be here. Great. All right. Well, let me give you a little bit of context of why I have you two and where we're going to go. First, the point of this podcast is really to go beyond what your app when you go to Hey Siri and what it can provide to you and see. If you look at my phone, it just asks me what I need help with. (laughs) So we'll just (laughs) shut that off. Because this show is about going deeper and, and getting a lot more insights. And in this particular case, I really want to talk about your profession, about your business wisdom. You have a collective what? How many years of practice as facial plastic surgeons? How many years collective do we have here? We got to do some math. Are we talking about after? Uh, no, but when are we starting? Are we starting oh. when we started practice? Yeah. 30. 30 in private practice. 30 years. You, you've been in practice 30 years? None of your damn business. Damn, you're... Well, I tell you, man, you're an old man. Jesus. Oh, hey, uh, me, hey. I'm about... To, I, I'm 20, so we got a half decade between the two. Well, hey, I'm on my third facelift already. <laughs> I thought so. Well, what about that hair transplant? Though? What happened to that? Failed. Yeah. He doesn't have any other hair, you know, as a donor site. <laughs> <laughs> anyway... Hey, Tom, by the way, your hair looks very beautiful. Just want to say it. Oh, you know, okay. I've, I've added the gray hair coloring, so I give them a more mature look. Yeah, yeah. you need that for being... <laughs> you might want to try it. Anyway, I've known Paul for over a decade now, believe it or not. And one of the things I'm so appreciative of is when I first told you about realself.com and walked you through it, you were immediately, sure, I'm interested. I'd like to sign up. I'd love to be listed there and have patients yep. meet me. And... I want to thank you for that. And Bill, you are the first surgeon I've actually ever met in the field of aesthetics. You were the first facial plastic surgeon, let alone aesthetic surgeon that I've ever met. And you too were an early believer and knew the company before it was a pixel on a screen. So between the two of you, early believers and me, and I just am really excited to have both of you together to have this conversation today. So let's get into it. Well, first, we got to recognize that Paul is going to be a new dad in how long, Paul? I'm going to show you a picture while you're doing that. Um, October, right now, 19th. Wow, and that's Hold on, watch this. Let me show you something real quick. Okay, so for the listeners, he is now showing us his cell phone with... Fetal heartbeat. That's the head and the belly. So this mm. is from today. Oh, wow. To the spine. Oh, yeah. There so you, go. you guys just got, and that's, and that's fresh, from, fresh from today. Real self, shown for the first time. Breaking news. Paul, I know you're a fantastic and famous facial plastic surgeon, but 
Do you know how to change a diaper? I, I do. Matter oh. of fact, um, I did that for the three boys. Obviously, it's been a few, uh, a few, a little bit of time gone by, but I'm ready to start again. I'm, you know, I'm, I'm ready to do it for a few times, and then that's good enough. Yeah. A yeah. couple poopy diapers and then you'll move on. Yeah. <laughs> One blowout. You'll have the garden hose on the kid. Yeah. <laughs> I think we should just get really serious now because it's a very serious conversation. Let's talk about COVID. And you might have heard of this pandemic kind of going around, but I'd really like to talk about how it's impacting your profession. You are all sort of determined by government officials as non-essential. I hope you don't take that personally. But a question that keeps coming up on Real Self and something we've seen in surveying about a quarter of the people who are putting their surgical plans on pause have said they're worried about safety and can they get a procedure done safely. So I want to open up to both of you and just say, is this appropriate time to get cosmic surgery? Is it safe? Should I delay? What should I know about these things? Let me throw this to Bill first and then go to Paul. So Bill, what is your, um, what is your opinion on this and your perspective? Well, this is a whole new paradigm. We're going to have to shift a lot of the procedures and processes, what we do to do this certain type of surgery very safely, especially in the field of rhinoplasty, because in the nose and the nasopharynx is where this virus exists. So we have to take, as facial plastic surgeons, we have to take extra special precautions. That means, you know, an N95 mask, it means goggles, that means face shields for the anesthesia department, for the nurses, for the staff. We're actually going to have the patients all tested, the swab test in the back of the nasopharynx two to three days prior to their surgery so that we know that they're not infected. And myself and my staff are going to get tested so we know we don't have it and we transmit it to them. So it's you know kind of a two-way street. And we're going to limit how many patients can come in and out of the office or the surgery center at any given time. It's going to be one patient at a time and no family members. So you think it's going to be safe is what you're saying? I think it'll be very safe. But there's lots of precautions that we're going to have to take into right. account. Right. Everything that Bill just said is spot on. And I'm part of a rhinoplasty task force. I'm also part of now more putting together more of a local task force with oculoplastics, plastics, facial plastics, and derm. We're having a, our Zoom call tomorrow. Got it. We're talking about timing. And obviously, they do everything, you know, at least as we know, by data. And, um, you know, what's going to happen again as COVID starts to, I mean, everyone's being tested more. At least in California, they're making it available for everyone to be tested. Obviously, that means more cases will be diagnosed, whether you're asymptomatic or not. But again, the thing that I think where the data really for us is, is probably hospitalizations, deaths, leveling off on numbers after they do more mass testing. When do I think he's going to come back and say, in our mind, you can go back and do cosmetic surgery? You know, I'm guessing maybe the end of May, beginning of June. I mean, I would hope. But now on the safety aspects, so that's one from the state. The safety aspects, and Bill, you'll get a kick out of this. And Tom, you know, if you see in the movies when an orthopedic surgeon is doing these um, joint procedures of wearing this full body kind of a suit. Like a hazmat suit. Yeah. So matter of fact, I'll pull out a quick little while we're talking. You know, just out of safety, for example, this is just, you know, you can wear, you can wear your loops. You know, it's, it's like on the movie Contagion almost. Yeah. So I think that when we're talking about wearing the mask, the N95, wearing some type of a shield or one of these outfits, 
or versus there's the other respirator thing where it covers your mouth and nose and you can't get in anything else. Uh, there's those type of different uh, protection. But again, we're talking about one, interviewing patients, finding out have they been again, you know, what have they been doing for the quarantine and do an individual history. Two, make sure they're asymptomatic. Three, the one antibody test to see if they've had it or IgM will means they are actually in it. And then we're going to do two swabs within 24 hours apart just because of the sensitivity. In other words, you know, three out of 10 people could have it, but say that can come out saying they don't have it. And I think with all that, and maybe another rapid test right in the surgery center, I think we pretty much can get it covered on the safety aspect, at least hopefully making sure the patient doesn't have it. But at the same time, we got to make sure no one in the operating room has it. Correct. But no matter what, it's still risky. It's still unprecedented. It's still going to be, you know, we're going to still have to learn about this, which is still different than coming in the office and having no one wait in the waiting room, door open, same kind of screening, but probably no blood test. But if they want to come in for Botox, if, you know, we're a lot, I think they mentioned cosmetic procedures. I don't know if Botox is it, but if everyone's wearing masks and you're pretty much tested and I assume that might start happening in mid-May. I don't know in California. I mean, is that happening in Seattle, Bill? The hospitals are just getting geared up to start testing everyone for COVID with a nasal swab test. Yeah. The anesthesiologists who do anesthesia in our facility, because I'm private practice and I have my own Medicare certified surgery center, but the anesthesiologists have said everyone needs to be tested. Well, here's a conundrum. Like you, Paul, half of my practice comes from out of town or out of the state. Mm. And the anesthesiologist said, well, wait a minute. If somebody gets tested in Minnesota and then they jump on an airplane and they fly in here, wait a minute. So we're probably going to have to bring them in three days ahead of time, get them tested here, and then have them hang out for another week after the surgery. Yeah, I I have patients from all over the world, but we're going to do the same thing. We're going to actually have them test a swab before they fly out, come in, self-quarantine, and then do the same process all over again. And that means they're going to have to stay in an extra week or so. So you're bringing the patients in a week early before yeah, they're I mean, maybe even five days. But again, this is all, I mean, we're sitting every day trying to get this process better. I know. But, I, I, you know, but the question really is going to be, you know, is there a risk? With everybody, there's still a risk. But I think we're trying to mitigate everything as best as possible and be as safe as possible. But you can tell just like anything, there'll be a learning curve. Correct. And it's fluid in motion. I mean, these new parameters keep changing and new ideas. And, and so you have to kind of move with the flow of because what we're talking about now might be totally That's different right. two months from now. Right. One of the things that sex industry has been sort of wrapped with in the past as well, it's unregulated. And, you know, you have all told me stories about doctors who should not be doing things they're doing because they're not board certified, in, for instance, as an example. And... I was talking to someone recently said it's just going to take one rogue actor to really make things significantly challenging for the entire practice of aesthetics and that you know somebody who's not careful about safety in their practice and they create the next hot spot and that goes to the New York Times front page. Do you guys think about that as a real issue and in LA and in your area Dr. Kirby, I don't know if you know Dr. Kirby, he's been talking about the industry is rife with greed and nefarious leanings and and it just feels like is the industry really prepared for COVID 
writ large, or is there going to be some real challenges you guys foresee? I, mean, I haven't read what he wrote yet, but you know, I think that no matter what, this is, as we talked about, this is going to be so changing over time. But again, you're going to have some bad apples in anything that we have in any type of job place or any profession. You're going to have some people try to ruin it for everybody else. I mean, that's going to happen. I mean, the thing is, you know, our goal is to be as safe as possible. And this is something for every one of us that we're going to try to learn. But listen, we're all trying to do the right thing. Are people going to try to do the right thing and make mistakes? It's going to happen. Are people going to get sick and blame it on their procedure they had, whether it's having a LASIK eye procedure versus having cosmetic procedure versus having your gallbladder taken out? It's going to happen. I mean, that's just the bottom line. And it just depends on how, you know, the doctors uh, deal with this, how the media portrays it. I mean, this is something I don't know. Right. Bill, do you want to add anything? You know, the state licensing boards could mandate all physician providers get tested. We're voluntarily testing myself and all of my staff. Oh, yeah. Make sure we're not. But, you know, there's going to be some physicians that don't think it's a big deal and they're going to try to cut the corners and try to, you know, do their surgery or their Botox and get a, you know, a hot spot or communicate the disease to somebody. And, and it could be some real problems because there is a, a lot of providers that are not well trained in this arena. Yeah, I heard that about med spas. Most med spas have never heard the term PPE before. They don't even know, know what this means to have sterile conditions and so forth. But, you know, just to add what, what Bill just said, mm-hmm. yeah, for our office, for our, our med spa and our office, even though the nurse practitioners and estheticians are doing some telemedicine, just, you know, hey, how you doing? How's your skin doing? But everyone, when they come back to the office, like right now, we're having some people in the office and, you know, doing phone calls and all that. Every one of them are getting the swabs and getting the uh, blood test. Every one of them. And I've already had mine. I'm not going with yet. You know, I'm still I'm negative with everything. Thank God. But again, it sounded kind of hollow to me. We're, we're, thank you, brother. <laughs> I mean, we're, we're all quarantining. All following the instructions. Yeah, good. Well, let's change a little bit to a topic that I really love to cover in my show, which is around advice you can give to small business owners, entrepreneurs, people like yourself who maybe um, are early in their careers. And you know, I just heard from you both that you know, combined your 50 years of wisdom. So given the conditions in the market right now, there's a lot of stress and strain on every business owner and operator. But just looking at your career, if you had to go back and revisit and sort of do it over again, what would you do differently? What are some key things you would have done differently? Or would you have just said, no, actually, I did a couple things right that others can learn from that are maybe right now feeling a lot of stress and feeling a lot of duress from the impact of the pandemic on their business? I'll start with Bill on this one. You know, I don't really see that I've made a whole lot of mistakes along the way for the last 30 years. I mean, yeah, we all have little bumps in the road. One of the best things, when things come along like this, like they did in the Great Depression 10 years ago, you really got to hunker down. You got to watch your expenses. You've got to make sure the income is still coming in. If you need to switch up gears a little bit and do a different case mix or payer mix or do something different to keep your income stream going, and that way you can pay your employees. Your employees always come first. And so through the last issue we had in the Depression 10 years ago, I was able to pay the employees and grow my revenues in my practice during that period of time. 
This one's a little different. You know, we've been shut down for what, six weeks now. And it was one of the hardest decisions of my life I ever had to tell, you know, a long-term employee. Three of them have been with me for 15 years and another employee has been with me for 26 years. It's extremely difficult to tell them I have to put you on furlough. But I only kept them on furlough for about two, two and a half weeks. And I got one of the SBA loans, the uh, payroll protection plan. And I was able to get that. I applied very early as soon as you could. And as the moment I got that loan deposited in my bank account, I immediately called my staff, all three of my nurses personally. I said, you are back on my payroll, period. So your advice, if I had to play it back, your advice is take care of your team. Always. Take care of them. They they are watching what you do during bad times, not just what you do during good times. Correct. You always have to take care of your employees because they're the ones that have taken care of me for the last 25, 30 years in private practice. You know, at one point I, I realized at Real Self, I was not just building a product, but actually I was building a team. And that psychology of shifting to actually, I got to do everything I can to make this team as effective as possible and support it as much as possible really led to me having greater success than otherwise. Paul, what about you in terms of career retrospective? Are there things that you would do differently that could turn into advice for someone who is feeling the the pain of the current economic situation? First of all, in general, just about what we're going through now. And this is more for everybody who has maybe been an owner in a business, especially, again, if you can make sure you are surviving. This could be two months, could be two and a half months, three months. And of course, hopefully you all got the PPP loans, just like you know, Bill got, I got mine, I think a week and a half ago. And this is probably, I'm going to kind of rotate it in a different direction. This is probably the only time in my life and my career, because I haven't slowed down since the beginning of medical school, because we have medical school, residency, fellowship, practice. I haven't had time to smell the roses, smell the coffee, do nothing. Right. I've actually taken this five, six weeks. And I have to tell you, I've been in love with it. Yeah. Spending time at home with the wife who's pregnant. My kids are here half the time, working out every day, still doing my virtual consultations, which you know, I gave you the uh, email, which you could post later on. For sure. We're doing that. I'm working on my skincare. I'm doing all these Zooms, you know, we're giving lectures. It's actually been something that has been wonderful. And what I've learned from this, once we start, even though we're going to have to try to make up for lost time, because we're all losing a lot of income, and maybe we're not ready for that financially, and maybe that's another lesson. You got to be ready for this again financially, and maybe a little bit more of a piggy bank ready to go, is um, take a little bit more time and not kill yourself. So I think out of all these years, if I had to look back, what would I have done different now? Listen, I, I picked a specialty, hard noses. You know, I mean, I did all these things, and I'm sure I would have changed maybe about 20% of the fuck. But I will say that if anything I've learned now, retrospectively, work hard, you have to, but then take that little time with your wife, your kids, your family, because you never know what could happen. I think that this has been a great eye-opener for myself in terms of what I was missing when I was on all these business trips, you know, lectures around the, around the world. Um, yep. and which I'd see you at every one of them, which we yeah. were doing it too much, doing it too much. 
too much. So it, it is about massive change in prioritization. Yeah. And you know what's going to happen. I mean, you know that the world will never be the same. The first time the entire world is commiserating in unison with a problem. So that's kind of a positive thing. But no matter what, you know, it's going to change everything. I mean, some things, you know, masks. Yeah. We will be wearing masks, especially going on airplanes now, just like what China's been doing all these years. I mean, it'll be interesting now to look today versus five years from now to see what's different. For sure. It's hard to even uh, predict, but uh, there is a lot of change happening under our feet every day, as Bill also referenced in terms of business environment. Both of you have had remarkable success in your careers in different ways. But I look at that and I was, I was sort of tracing it back to you've both had platforms that are, I would call them springboard platforms that have really enabled you to achieve sort of breakout success or escape velocity as tech people like to call it. And Paul, in your case, clearly you've had incredible success in TV and in media. And Bill, you've had a combination of working on digital marketing early and becoming a huge... like I would say you're probably the most famous doctor on Real Self. And then you've taken that and, and both of you are now very successful on Instagram. So I'd love to talk about these springboard platforms. And Paul, I'll start with you. Was TV something that you knew was necessary to get you to the next level? Or was it just happenstance that that became a vehicle for much of your success? 20 years ago, I was sitting down watching, I think, when Extreme Makeover came up. And that was the first plastic surgery show. And as a new young doctor, a couple of years of my career, with a very hard specialty. And a very hard specialty, one of the things I remember giving lectures to through my, our Academy of Facial Plastics was the use of public relations. So at that point, I started doing these little TV shows and getting on the news for the little makeovers. So I found that PR and media was an interesting third-party endorsement to show what you can do. It wasn't an ad, but it shows what you can do on TV. So I started liking this about a good 20 years ago. So for me, like Bill heavily got into digital with real self in the beginning and how important that is. I mean, now that's like everything. And I kept growing in regards to the media side and then got onto a little bit of Dr. 90210 for a year. And then even though it didn't really help my career, but at least led me in a botch, the Housewives of Beverly Hills, obviously that was more just straight reality TV. And then I thought about the concept of botch. You know, now we're airing right now on Mondays at 9 Eastern, 8 Central, you know, our season 6B. We're going to be on the air, by the way, from now all the way to October, every Monday. It's amazing. And you told me once how many countries Botched is appearing in. What's the number now? It's offered to 160 different countries. That's just... You know, yeah. It's phenomenal. And when you break through to North Korea, let me know. Yeah, good luck. <laughs> That's right. So actually, but of all the things that probably Asia is the hardest area for us. Hmm. So that is something for me as a springboard. One, it showcases your talent, but we also showcase complications and real medicine and how dangerous it can be and what not to do. But also for me, you know, my other love, as you know, is skincare. So it's also helped me as less facial plastic surgeons. We know the skin from the inside and out. So me, I'm skincare. So I love that. 
So that's what botched and being on TV has helped me. So pretty much, if you want to call it PR, media, I love doing it. I've been doing it since the beginning of my career. Yeah. And then Bill, let's talk about your springboard platforms. So yeah, well, like we said in the beginning of the show, you were the first doctor I ever met. I don't know if you were the first doctor. I think you might have been the first one to answer a question. And you've answered how many questions on the realself.com platform? 30,000. Just 30,000. Oh my God. Those are all <laughs> custom answers. That's why he lost all his hair. God bless you. <laughs> but I realized early on, you know, I met you, Tom, when, when you had just had this idea of real self laptop computer. You didn't even have an employee yet. You didn't even have any financing. And then you laid out your idea to me in, in, at our living room over a glass of wine. And I looked at this and I went, I think he's on to something. But I don't know, Tom. I didn't know. I just met you. I didn't know that how well you could execute. Well, I've since found out 14 years later, you do know how to execute. Absolutely. And um, I was a very early adopter because I, I think I answered the very first question on, on real self. And it was a kind of a low and slow ball. And the question, Paul, the question was, what is a rhinoplasty? (laughs) (laughs) The second question was, what is a blepharoplasty or eyelid surgery? The third question is, what is a facelift? (laughs) It starts out simple, but now you get much more complex. But talk about that, how, you know, one of the things I had asked you earlier about is what to do in in times where things are rough. And what I see a lot of your peers doing in the world, world of individual practice owners is really pulling back on their marketing. They're saying, oh, the first thing I need to cut is my marketing. But in the in the big recession period where you start getting really active on Real Self, you actually started spending a lot more money on our platform and I believe on others. So can you explain, are you crazy or is that just... A, are you a contrarian? Or is that just something you think is just a good business practice? When I see the, the economy going down or there's a problem and all these other surgeons are pulling back, they're dynamiting the brakes on their practice, if you will. They are putting the brakes on all spending. And so all of a sudden, the patients are still out there. The patients still want to have this work done. So just since COVID has hit, I've actually purchased additional rhinoplasty spotlight ads on Real Self. And I just signed up for that new high volume uh, Real Self sponsored ads yesterday. So I'm doing business development and putting the foot down on the gas pedal, not the brake pedal, on making I come out of this vortex that I'll be stronger than ever and have a very robust practice. So now's the time to do business development. Paul, do you do you, do you share that philosophy? Because you know you did make a great comment earlier. Sort of a a really important part for entrepreneurship is whatever you do, don't run out of money. <laughs> so that's step one: is stay afloat. But do you share that same view of like keep the marketing going through a, a downturn like we are experiencing now, or maybe it's not even a downturn. We're just like stuck and gone to zero overnight. Yeah, I mean, I think that's extremely important. Maybe you don't have to expend as much, but one thing you don't want to do, you don't want to shut down. You want to keep doing whatever you're doing, whether it's answering questions on real self or doing anything at all possible. You have to keep going. You do not stop. You do not take a pause. You just get ready to get on that train once it gets going. Or I should say, jog, don't run, but then get ready to start running again. Now, you both have been incredibly successful on Instagram based on different trajectories of... You know, Paul, I assume your your show has a huge factor in, in driving growth in your follower. And I think you had a million 
at this point, or you're just on the cusp? Nine nine fifty seven. Okay, so this this podcast is going to push you over a million. Ooh, that'd be, I'm, <laughs> I love that. I'm ready for that because you know, I love that. Well, we'll see. We'll see what we can do. Remember, that's just on Instagram. Yeah, and, um, I've already, I've already passed a million with Twitter and Facebook, and obviously with if you yeah. add them all up. Incredible. And Bill, you've got an amazing engagement. Our team looks at your profile all the time and we see videos of yours just go near viral of you taking a cast off a nose and the patient expressing their joy of of their new nose. But I do see a lot of surgeons who struggle on Instagram and and I'm sure you do see as well. If you had some advice for for doctors who are just not seeing the traction you've even close to traction you've had on Instagram, do you have any insights or secret tips that you're willing to share? that you think would help those folks? If you had them in front of you in an audience, you could say, just stop doing this, start doing that. Or is it much more nuanced than that? Bill, I'll start with you since you're, you're the one who um, has really catapulted in the last year and a half, I think. Well, you have to understand, if you're talking about Instagram, you, you want to know who's the audience, what's their age bracket, and what potential procedures do they want to do? And the answer for me, as a facial plastic surgeon, the answer is rhinoplasty. And there are a ton of young women and guys that want to have a rhinoplasty. Okay. So when I got started with this, I mean, I, I was posting pictures of this and that, and I just wasn't getting any traction. Mm-hmm. And then I said, okay, I woke up one day, and I, maybe it was middle of the night, I said, okay, this Instagram thing, once I kind of got my hand, my arms around it, what it was all about, I just woke up one day and said, what is the aha moment that you can capture of a patient after their surgery? And the emotional moment, the aha moment, is simply taking the cast off a woman's nose or a guy's nose. They have been thinking about a rhinoplasty for many, many, many years. And then you, they go through the procedure. They look like hell. They got battered and bruised, look like you got out of a bar fight. Mm-hmm. And then, you know, I'm slipping these uh, silly little pink casts on or purple casts or real cells on these patients. And we peel that off, and then some of them break down in tears. And all I've done is just unveiled their new nose, even mm. though it's really, really swollen. Paul, I'm sure you you have a different approach, but um, do you share some of that sort of capturing the moment in your Instagram? I don't do it like I mean. I love what Bill has been doing, and I've been actually liking his, you know, the cast coming out, especially his incredible colors, which. He sent me some. I can't wait to start using them once, uh, you know, I love what he does. I mean, I asked him and he, so I have them at the surgery center, but again, right when you sent them, we stopped. Yep. So I haven't done that. I've actually learned that from him and a lot of my patients. So I have to tell you these hard reconstructions and I have to tell you, I already know the first thing I'm going to take off the cast is why is it so fat and swollen? <laughs> you know, because I'm doing these eighth rhinoplasty. Ugh. But I got to tell you, especially wow. a huge hump, you take that off. So what Bill did is absolutely incredible. And, and with me, I have to tell you, a lot of my patients uh, don't let me do any posting of their things, even though I right. have a few interoperative ones, as you can see on mine. Mine, unfortunately, I'm different because since I'm more of a celebrity, I got to post more fun stuff and about the show and but the, the baby like we just posted i think now they posted a, a picture of the baby sucking her son from an ultrasound yeah. i mean so people want to see that for me so i gotta tell you i'm a little bit different but what bill has done i think from an instagram uh, aspect social media fantastic thank you yeah that capturing the motion bill is an incredible insight that i think goes so far beyond what you 
typically see, which is that static before and after. And while that is interesting, they're sort of everywhere and not that unique. So congrats on really groundbreaking on that. Thank you. Let's talk about the nose. You guys seem to know quite a bit about it. And I would want to go into sort of the art of the of a good nose job and maybe the disaster of a bad one. But I, I really want to start with the psychology of the patient, of the person who gets a nose job. And what have you discovered is the true underlying motivation? And I mean, like if you had to just boil it down and synthesize it into, here are the one, two, or three things that are really compelling a person to come to you, spend a bunch of money, and go through quite a recovery process and take risk. What do you believe is that motivation? And I'll start with Paul. Uh, well, I'm, I have a little bit of a skewed practice. And 75% of, of the noses I do are revisions. And I'll tell you what, I'll take that for a minute. And then, Bill, maybe you can talk about just the primary, primary you know, which mostly, again, the big tips and the big humps. With me, I have an uphill battle because I think most of the time the patients want a realistic so your expectations are aligned for an improvement only. Two, with me, they are spending a good amount of money because these surgeries are with rib and they're thirty, forty thousand dollars a lot of money. And I'm going to come back to that in a minute for exact reason. And I have to make sure from a psychological standpoint, you know, we have to evaluate them as you see I'm botched. We have to make sure there's no OCD, there's no BDD. BDD is huge. BDD I mean, meaning? Body, body dysmorphic disorder where... Mm-hmm where they think that there's something there that really isn't. They Got see it. something that's, they're making it a 10 out of 10 when it's really a one out of 10. Or OCD and the obsessive compulsive aspect of these patients sometimes driving for perfection and I miss it sometimes. So we always have to make sure we're getting the right from the psychological standpoint. They have to, okay, if we have a complication, how can we handle it? Now, I will tell you a huge negative thing and this happens in many of our practices. I have a patient, I have a video that patients see about how difficult it is for revision and all the negatives. Your nose is not going to be perfect. You probably may need a touch-up. It's going to be this. You're going to be swollen for three years. No matter what I do, when a patient still sees some type of irregularity six months down the line, they're mad. No matter what you told them, and it's due to skin shrink ravage, and I show them a picture of the nose in the operating room, and it's perfect. But I warn them, it's not going to heal perfectly because of the skin has been operated on before. No matter what, that is my uphill battle. Patients are never prepared for an imperfection, no matter what it is, no matter how much I try. And um, it's hard, and it's really hard and difficult. So I think if, if you're a patient and you're going to spend a certain amount of money and you're going to have an elective procedure, especially on the nose, which is a hardest of all surgical procedures in plastic surgery because it can heal so many different ways. You have to be ready to accept all of that before you're a good patient Hmm. and all the complications that could occur. It is interesting the contrast between your practices. I hadn't thought of that before with Bill. You're predominantly seeing a person for their first ever surgery. Bill, when you think of that underlying motivation, is it to fit in with others? Is it from a, an aspiration to look like someone else? What do you see as the motivation of a primary rhinoplasty patient? I'm probably just the opposite of Paul. Probably 75% of my practice is primary rhinoplasty for you know, the patient's first time. Right. And probably 25% is revisions. 
But the overlying factor really is most of these young women become, maybe they were bullied as a young child about their dorsal hump, or maybe they were called some type of name, but they get very focused on this bump, so much so that they don't want to take a photograph from a such and such angle. They feel very self-conscious about that hump. You mean their entire childhood and so where they're yes. aware of this, yes. you're saying? So they, they're growing hair. They grow their hair long to kind of cover their face. They're very shy. They, they, they hold themselves down. They, won't, they don't oh. want to pull their hair back in a ponytail and show off their nose. Or when you have somebody who has a crooked nose, maybe they got it broken and fell down as a kid, fell off their tricycle or something. They have a crooked nose. Well, guess what happens now with, with all these photographs? Now, Paul, you and I are old enough to know that we used to do 35 millimeter cameras back in the day, and you'd have to take your film and go take it down to the drugstore and go get it developed, right? Oh, yeah. I remember those. Now it's digital, right? And, you know, I'd have a few photographs, packets, you know, but, but now we all have thousands and thousands of pictures on our cell phone, which has a pretty damn good camera on it. And so... All of a sudden, you patients get hooked into these different angles. They can only stand in certain, certain lighting, and they can only stand on one side, and then they cock their head 10 degrees or 20 degrees to make sure that their nose looks straight in a photograph, whether it's taken by themselves or somebody else. Hmm. So this whole selfie is another issue because selfies are a wide-angle, fishbowl, parabolic lens. And Paul and I are almost you know, amateur photographers, so we understand that. But I can tell you that 23-year-old young lady who wants a nose job has no idea what a wide-angle fishbowl, wide-angle lens is. They have no idea. And they don't understand the distance and holding the camera away and opening up the aperture of the camera setting. And so selfies... It's just compounded this... Compound yeah. Yeah. The, the problem. Because if you have a picture of your... It depends on where you're holding that selfie. Your nose is going to be the closest to the camera. Therefore, it's going to be the biggest thing on the photograph. Yeah, I mean, I, it, the nose is incredible. And it just so... It is on display all the time. You're not covering it up. Right. Except now with the mask. So maybe you're in, your industry is in trouble. <laughs> but <laughs> but uh, it certainly is something that I've thought about. I broke my nose in college and I know you can't imagine me playing rugby, but that's why I broke my nose. But I've thought about fixing my nose since college and I've of course not done that. How can I avoid becoming another individual who's featured on Botched? You know, Paul, is there, a, is there any advice you have to make sure that I would never be on your show for a revision or, or telling you about my terrible experience with a surgery? I can tell in general, someone who's going to have an elective procedure, and let's say it is on your nose. Since the nose is the most complex procedure, and the more aggressive you are with it, the more problems you're going to have. And over the years, we've become more and more conservative with rhinoplasty. And especially when I, you know, when I do a primary rhinoplasty, Bill and I both do this, but we're reinforcing it as we're making it smaller so that it won't collapse with time. Anyway, the bottom line is, you got to make sure you pick the right physician with the right experience and the right knowledge. Let's say you do that and don't do things based on the price. So if you go to cheap plastic surgery, not a qualified doctor for, you know, uh, you're not going to a board certified facial plastic or plastic surgeon that does a lot of noses. Remember, not all plastic surgeons are good with everything. So you have to go to that specialist. What that will do is it will decrease the risk of you needing a revision. However, it doesn't minimize it. There's still complications that occur with all of us when we're operating. But it's the patients that we find out that have a little bit more of a plastic surgery addiction and that are unrealistic or have an underlying 
psychological issue, which keep coming back for more and more surgeries, to looking for something. And when you keep going back and seeking that perfection, that's when you get in trouble. And that's what you've seen so many times on Botched. And then they get to a place where no one will operate on them anymore. And they realize they went too far and they need now for us to try to put them back to normal again. Like we've seen thousands of times patients that said, I overdid it. I ruined my nose or my face or my breast. I shouldn't have done it. I shouldn't have had those illegal butt injections. And now can you make me back to the way I used to be? And I promise I've learned my lesson. That is kind of the average patient. And I think if you're smart and you do everything the right way, and psychologically you're very happy, then your risk is decreased, but it's not zero. Got it. Bill, do you want to add anything to how I could avoid the on Paul show with a bad nose? Well, like, I mean, I mirror exactly what Paul's talking about. I mean, rhinoplasty is the hardest operation to do in all of cosmetic surgery. You want to go to someone who's done a lot of these. And Paul, in my opinion, you can agree with me or not, but I think it takes a thousand noses and a decade of experience to become really proficient at this operation. I used to think it was a thousand, <laughs> but compared to what I do, these revisions, I think it's probably more like for me, 10,000, 20,000, <laughs> because I have to tell you, Bill, because I have the fellows and we have two fellows and we're constantly writing. I'm still learning after looking at my post-ops. I'm still learning now. And how many have you done? I don't know, 20, 25,000 maybe. I don't you know. Bill, what about you? Many thousands, but I don't keep track anymore. That's fascinating. So it is something that I wasn't thinking of this before the show, but what makes the nose so complex? I mean, when I feel my nose, it feels like there's a bone in there and there's some skin on top of it. And I I realize there's some air passageways, but what, what is it that makes that the most difficult part of your body? So let me, I'll take that question. So first of all, the nose is a three dimensional structure. It's got you know, multiple different cartilages, bones, and then a soft tissue envelope over the framework of the nose. And it heals in a three-dimensional fashion. And when it does, it can heal, you know, not like Paul was talking about earlier, it may not be quite perfect because it can heal left, up, right, down. I mean, it can heal in all different directions because it's a, you know, when you get cut across you know, your hand or something, that's a linear cut and it heals linearly. The nose heals three-dimensionally. And it most of the time it goes with us. But every now and then you got to come back and futz around and do a little touch-up. I tell patients my touch-up rate's anywhere from 10 to 15% depending upon the skin. And then people with thick skin, I'm putting steroid shots in the tip of the nose. How do I know if I have thick skin? What is, I mean, I, I know that from a, <laughs> from a, a business <laughs> perspective or life parenting perspective. But. but the skin in the bridge of the nose is much thinner than the skin in the tip of the nose. The tip of the nose it can be quite variable in the thickness. So we operate, when we do surgery on the nose, on the tip of the nose, we're modulating or making, refining the nasal tip cartilages. If you have thin skin, everything shows. If you have thick skin, well, if you have thick skin, it's like wearing a a winter parka on. And so it it just, you know, in the thick skin patients, you know, that usually dark complected, olive complected, Middle Eastern, and they require a series of steroid shots to modulate the soft tissue envelope over the cartilaginous framework of the nose. I imagine the healing process, Paul, is different for every patient, right? Like I might recover much more differently than another person who even has the same sort of nose type and, and skin thickness. Is that correct? Or... 
Yeah, absolutely. Just like Bill was saying. I mean, the nose heals differently, but the thing is, the number one negative about rhinoplasty, even though it's the three-dimensional healing, and shrink wrappage of the skin of the nose. So no matter what you do on the cartilage or bone underneath, the more and more surgeries you have, the more the skin heals in a regular fashion. And that's what we call shrink wrappage of the skin. The left side of the nose can heal differently than the right side of the nose. But the biggest issue is the swelling. The thicker the skin, usually the more swollen it is. And that's why I tell patients three years. And that's what patients can't stand is the swelling. So the nose is just not predictable. I can do everything I want, step one through 10 perfectly, but the nose may not heal at all when I saw it. And this is a conundrum we face when it comes to rhinoplasty and why it's so hard and why we also have a lot of patients that are unhappy. Okay, this is maybe going to take you guys in place, but why would you even choose to do this then? Like, why would you pick the hardest surgery to do? And Paul, on top of it already being a challenging one from a primary perspective, you've chosen to do the most challenging, which is, you said something like a person on their eighth surgery, which is just unbelievable. Paul, so with you, why choose this versus go to body anatomy areas that are much easier, much more predictable, and less susceptible to uh, these challenges? I think it's my type A personality <laughs> that I kind of wanted to challenge, take something that I thought was the hardest and try to do a good job at it. And I know that nose was something that to me was or is the most difficult. And so I just took that leap of faith because I loved rhinoplasty during my residency and fellowship. And I wanted to try to master this and get a niche for myself that I enjoyed doing revision rhinoplasty. I will tell you, though, all the horrible things and the negative things and the risks and the healing and the complications, I didn't think about that when I started this, obviously. And throughout the years, if I can change anything, I wish I had a crystal ball to tell everyone how they're going to heal after. Because, you know, it's, it's not great when you have a patient who's just not happy. And, of course, it happens with everybody. Right. So... It's an interesting question. So I picked it because I loved it and I thought it was the hardest procedure of all and I wanted to try to get good at it. You know, I, I admire that because people have asked me why I would have quit a perfectly good job I had before I started my company and go do a startup. And I just found that I was kind of getting bored in a corporate job and I just wanted to challenge myself and boy, did I. <laughs> so yeah. it's, it is a steep learning curve, but that's when I'm enjoying life, when I'm in learning mode. Bill, are you similar or is there a difference in how you chose to do the hardest surgery of all in the aesthetic space? No, I, I mirrored same, very much what Paul's talking about. And I wanted a niche. I wanted to do, do something that not all plastic or facial plastic surgeons are doing. And, you know, 30 years ago when I started my practice, I'd look around, I'd see some really screwed up noses. And um, I said, you know, I could do better than that. And so I just chose one of the hardest things to do. So it's kind of the crowd mentality, right? Everybody wants to do all the easy stuff. Well, I'm going to just shift over here and do the harder stuff, like a rhinoplasty. And that way it'll kind of, a lot of my competitors or colleagues don't want to do rhinoplasty. So they'll maybe send them to me. A lot of plastic surgeons may not do rhinoplasty. And they'll refer them to me. So I developed a niche and a pretty good one that allows me to be very successful at doing what I'm doing. Yeah. So I just wanted to look at doing something so difficult that 
very few people would tee off and try to compete with me. Yeah, I imagine if you had just focused on things like Botox and injectables, you would be pretty concerned about your competitive advantage in the marketplace and differentiation. There's a lot of nurse injectors that are just coming out and starting up their own Medispas. So it's very difficult. So I can't help but ask this because I imagine you get into interesting conversations in your career with a prospective patient or an actual patient. But coming to your practice, what is the strangest request you've ever gotten? Do you have anything that stands out or several things have stood out? Paul in Beverly Hills, I can't imagine you are short of strange requests. Um, Why don't we start with you since I think you would probably have some ripe examples. Listen, you just got to watch my show every week and you're going to see strange <laughs> nice plug. I mean, come on, man. I mean, Jesus. I mean, that's like routine. I want to hear one you haven't shared before. Come on. I want new material for Hey Siri. I had a patient come in and this was maybe, this is way before Botch, maybe 12 years ago. And this person had a perfect nose and this was a perfect example of BDD. So she had a perfect nose. She came in, she was crying immediately. As soon as she saw me, she started crying. She said, my nose is ruining my life. It's the biggest, ugliest thing. I wanted to actually take a knife and chop it off. And what I need you to do is carve out my nose so that it's maybe about one eighth the size. Wow. And she brought in a picture of a nose that was more pinched than even Michael Jackson's nose. And it was the most disgusting picture of a nose I've ever seen in my life. And I said to myself, I usually always can easily talk to a patient and, and try to talk about things, but I knew this patient was so heavy, heavy psychologically damaged with BDD that I listened and what I had to do, and of course the patient was pissed and I refunded her consult fee. I said, I, I have to tell you that you have severe body smoke disorder. And the most important thing you need to do before you do something to hurt yourself or you find a doctor that will give in to what you need is you need to go see a psychologist immediately. I go, this is very unhealthy. Your nose obviously doesn't need what you want, but I know that when you look in the mirror, you're seeing this. And no matter what I tell you, it doesn't matter. You need help. Now, she left pissed off. You're no good. Why'd you do this? I came here. I flew out here from so-and-so and she was pissed off. Called everyone names as she walked out of my office, got a dirty letter, horrible review on Yelp, you know, all that stuff. And interesting, about three years after I got an email from the same patient with a smile on her face saying, by the way, I ended up going more consults and it took me a good seven or eight months. And I finally decided to do a little therapy and I'm feeling a lot better. And I'm not seeking out to have my nose done right now. So that made me feel good. That's great. Yeah. I like that happening. I thought you were going to say, and then she said she did get surgery and now she wants to be unbotched. I thought that's where you were going to go. I was like, oh no. You just said something that I think is really important for our audience to hear, which is a good surgeon says no. I can't imagine how hard that is when you need to pay your bills and you're, you got a whole operating room sitting there waiting to be used. Do you find it hard to say no or do you get sort of accustomed to that? And when you're more distance in your career, you sort of get to a place where that's an easier thing for you to state to a prospective patient. Yeah, let, let me just finish that one. Of course, I'm sure Bill's going to say the same thing. When you're beginning and you are a brand new surgeon, it is hard. You want to operate on everybody. That's the way it is. 
as you become more senior and then you go through the headaches, whether you get sued, whether you get unhappy patients, whether they go through on the social media and say all this horrible stuff, whatever it is. You know, when you see those red flags, you immediately say, nope, and you cut it off immediately. Now, me personally, being on a show like what I do, I've gotten used to it all the time. So I will probably say no now to about 12% of my patients because I know I'm not going to make them happy or I know I can't make them better. If I had a crystal ball and I could figure out ahead of time if these patients have body dysmorphia, it would be so helpful because the patients, you could weed them out and say, no, you are not a candidate for surgery. They would be happier. My staff would be happier and I would be happier because these body dysmorphia patients are unhappy about themselves. Mm -hmm. They torture themselves. They torture us, me, my staff, my nurses. And just like Paul said, they go away mad. And when you tell them, when you bring this idea up of, hey, I, you know, I think you might have this thing called body dysmorphia. Let's talk about this. Let, there's, some, there's a website we can talk about that. Here, this could be helpful for you. You can take a self-test. And these people, for the most part, just absolutely shut down. Mm-hmm. It's a hard message to, to hear, right? They run out of the office screaming yep. profanities and yelling. They're mad because you won't operate on them. Yeah. But to answer the question on saying no, Paul said, I forget, it was like 12%. How often do you say it? Oh, probably less than that. Probably 3 to 4 or 5%. My staff tries to weed them out ahead of time the best they can when they're, right. you know. Right. And then we try to weed them out once the patients are in the office. And my staff has veto authority. If they say this is a problem patient, you know, they have the veto authority to say no surgery. Right the red flag is flying. So I empower my staff to tell me, you've got, we all have our flags flying because we don't want these unhappy patients. If you operate on a body dysmorphia patient, they will be unhappy no matter how good the surgery is and how good it looks. That's right. Look, I really enjoyed this conversation with you guys. And I I think we should just ask a couple quick questions and on our way out here. I think it's important for me to ask a question, which is what should somebody be asking you but they rarely do. So I'm coming in to your practice. I'm interested in a rhinoplasty. What should I be asking you? Again, what you're rarely asked. And I'll start with you, Bill. Is there something that you just so infrequently get asked, but it, it would be important for the patient to ask? I think, you know, about our credentials, patients already know. They already look in the, on the internet. They already know your credentials, your board certifications, your you know, ENT, facial plastic surgery. They've already seen all your before and afters. They've seen all the written information. They've gone to YouTube and they've seen the videos and all this and that. And one thing that I'll tell the patients that they don't ask is I said, look, and they go, well, how many noses have you done? I said, well, you know, several thousand. But what I will tell them is this. I've performed rhinoplasty on two plastic surgeons in the Seattle area. I have two more plastic surgeons that are interested in the rhinoplasty that are going to be on my schedule in the next six months. And I've operated on the family members of a half a dozen plastic surgeons in town and, and operated on their sons and daughters for a rhinoplasty. And so that's a pretty good qualification, I think, if another plastic surgeon or facial plastic surgeon wants me to operate on their, on their loved ones. Great. Paul, what about you? Is there a question that I should be asking you that you rarely get asked? Yes. Well, I tell them. They don't ask. I just tell them. Okay. Is If there's a complication, how do you handle it? What if I'm not happy with my nose and my surgery? All the negative things after surgery. 
doctors really don't discuss it usually that much, and sometimes patients don't ask it. So it's always a good idea to bring it out now in the beginning. Yeah, I think you both have hit on this and this theme of complications and things don't always turn out perfect. And I think that's really tricky and challenging when you are on these platforms like Instagram, where you just see perfection showing up over and over again. And the curated best pictures are coming forward from doctors. Like, here's my best results. And so it is a tricky space for both patient and doctor alike. And I thank you guys for digging into that and really helping the audience that's listening to this be more informed and and know what to expect and maybe adjust those expectations. Did I miss anything that you two wanted to cover? I'm going to ask where they can find you. And I think both of you are clearly on Instagram. But is there other places that they can find you? Can they get a consult with you? How do we go about that? And I'll start with you, Paul. I know you have an email address that people can send to and say, I would like to request a virtual consultation. Is that correct? Yeah, I'm doing a lot of virtual consultations, especially you know, due to the um, stay-at-home orders. And it's concierge at drpaulnassif.com. That's drpaulnassif.com. Also, my website is drpaulnassif.com. Right. So it's pretty simple for me. And if they go to realself.com, they can find Paul's profile there. Lots That's of pictures. Right patient testimonials. And he's also a verified surgeon on our platform. So Bill, what about yourself? Our website for doing virtual consults is seattlefacial.com. And our email address to do a virtual consultation is contactus at seattlefacial.com. And so you both have space in your practice to see patients, even though you're... I've been hearing about surgeons sort of getting backed up because they aren't in surgery center. So... If I wanted to book you, I got a virtual consult. How far out will it be before I could possibly get surgery with you? Bill, since you just mentioned it, how soon could I come in and potentially have a rhinoplasty for my broken nose? I would say at least six weeks. Okay. And that's because we canceled two months worth of surgery to start with. And then we've done many, many virtual consults with folks during this pandemic shutdown. So we have a lot of folks who are just sort of waiting for us to be able to open up again, both the, the ones that are canceled and the ones that want to get on my schedule. How about you, Paul? You've always had classically a very long waiting period, but also you have other surgeons who people can see. Can you explain that? Yeah. My associate, Dr. Grace Peng, is someone at if I'm too busy. A lot of my uh, patients go to Dr. Grace Peng and Dr. John Frederick. For me, though, I got to tell you, the first thing what's going to happen is when we can start operating, I have to do all those patients that we had to cancel or put on hold. That's going to take probably about a good month and a half wow. to catch up. And that's me doing, since I'm doing more consults, my goal will be to do less consults when I start and operate more, kind of try to really catch up. And then after that, I think right now, I'm guessing maybe about four months. Okay guessing. I mean, it just depends. The longer we hold off and operating until we're you know, safe and everything, it's just going to delay. Great. And when we get back to operating, things are going to be a little slower, you know, because of all the processes we have in place to keep patients safe and ourselves safe with this COVID virus. So it's not, you know, we're going to be less efficient. However, like Paul, we're going to get back to operating four days a week rather than two days a week to catch up our backlog. Great. Well, You guys are incredibly successful surgeons. I'm so honored that you were able to join me today. I consider you both customers of Real Self, or at least you're active on the platform, but also friends. So 
I thank you for your time and stay safe. And let's hope this pandemic can find its way out of our lives in a pretty quick fashion. Listen, thank you for having us. And of course, Bill, great seeing you. Tom, yep. great seeing you. Yeah. We'll, we'll eventually all have to get together after all this. Lots of hugs. Absolutely. Of hugs. No sloppy, no sloppy wet kisses with Paul. Oh, God. <laughs> oh, See you guys later. All right, all right guys. Take Thank care. you so much. Thank you so much for tuning in to Hey Siri. I am Tom Siri, and I'm very excited to have you follow me on heysiri.com, as well as I'm on Instagram at realselftom. And I am looking for new guests at all times. And if you think you'd be a great guest, you can simply email heysiri at realself.com. Thank you so much and have a wonderful day ahead of you.